If you have a Bible, you can maybe turn to Isaiah and chapter 39, which we read together this evening. And we're thinking of the servant king described in this chapter. Over the years, I have thought a lot and should probably think a lot more about the conversation between a student for the ministry and the aged preacher F.B. Mayer. The student was full of questions on this train journey that they had the conversation to the older minister, as you could imagine. The young student was full of ambition, enthusiasm and sincerity, but perhaps was marked by a little naivety. The young student asked the older minister as the conversation went on to pray for him in his subsequent studies and ministry. And we would say that was very commendable. But then the student added that F.B. Mayer would pray that God would keep him humble. And we would say, well, that was a really good thing for him to ask prayer for. But the older minister and wiser minister replied, and what have you got to be proud of? And the older man was right. The younger man had not graduated from his studies. He'd not served in a church. He'd absolutely nothing to be proud of. So why should it concern him to be humble? Chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah are the last section in this first book of Isaiah. The chapters are historical narrative Events in the reign of Hezekiah who ruled from 715 BC to 686. This last chapter in this short section, this historical narrative, is in contrast to the previous three chapters in which Hezekiah has shown trust in the Lord. In chapters 36 and 37, King Hezekiah received a letter from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, urging him to surrender his city and his country. The letter argued that all other nations had fallen before the mighty Assyrian army and that Jerusalem would be no different. Now Hezekiah He could not argue with that assertion because all other nations had fallen before the mighty Assyrian army. But Hezekiah took that letter from the king of Assyria and he presented it before God, asking for deliverance from God, placing his complete trust in the Lord. And deliverance was given him from the Lord. The Lord sent out his angel and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Chapter 37, verse 36. The second instance of Hezekiah trusting in the Lord is found in the previous chapter, chapter 38. Hezekiah the king becomes very ill. But he wants to live longer. And he asks God for more time on this earth. And God, in response to his prayer, 
And dependence on him gives him another 15 years to live. Chapter 38, verse 5. So here is a king trusting in God when the Assyrian army is at his gates. Trusting in God when he's on a bed of weakness and illness. But in this chapter, Hezekiah doesn't place his trust in the Lord. He courts the favor of the Babylonians, the emerging world power of the time. He depends on them to help him defend his city against the Assyrians. And this action of Hezekiah illustrates the action that was warned against that we were thinking of this morning in chapter 28 and continued through to chapter 35. The people of Israel, of Judah, they were putting their trust in man, in Egypt, in nations, in armaments to save them when the Lord had laid in Zion that cornerstone on which they should be trusting. So why this change in Hezekiah? From trusting in the Lord to trusting in himself and in others. Was it peer pressure from his lords and ladies and courtiers and advisors? Was it an influence from the the dominant thinking and feeling and outlook of the people of Judah? Maybe those issues had an effect on his mind and his judgment. But the dominant influence identified in this chapter and against which we are warned in this chapter is the pride in Hezekiah's heart. This pride in his heart diverted his attention away from trusting in the Lord to trusting in himself. And so in this chapter, we see Jesus by way of contrast. What Hezekiah is, Jesus is not. Hezekiah is a proud king. Jesus is a servant king. Hezekiah is a type of Jesus, not by example, but by inversion. All that Hezekiah was here, Jesus is not. This is a a useful and a legitimate way of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. But perhaps you have heard of Sidney Gradanus, but one of the, the wonderful things that he has done for the Christian church is to provide us with seven ways of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's what he calls ways of redemptive historical progression, and you'll probably have to look that up. Sometimes it's ways of promise, And then fulfillment, as we thought of this morning in chapter 28. Sometimes it's by way of typology. That that here is David and his faith. And it's a type of Jesus, the one who trusted in God. Sometimes it's by way of analogy. Sometimes it's by way of themes, sacrifice, redemption. Sometimes it's by way of direct New Testament reference. But the last way that we can find Jesus in the Old Testament, he says, is by way of contrast. As you read a murky story 
in Old Testament narrative in your daily devotions, the fall of Adam and Eve, the murder of Abel, the lie of Abraham, the pride of Hezekiah. You may be rubbing your chin and and wondering, how do I find Jesus in this story? The story is dark and evil. Where can Jesus, who is holy and pure, be found here? Sometimes the answer is by way of contrast. And the Bible does this, doesn't it? The Bible contrasts the fall of Adam with the obedience of the second Adam. It contrasts the daily sacrifices in the temple with the one sacrifice of Jesus at Jerusalem. It contrasts the occupied tomb of David in the Old Testament with the empty tomb of Jesus in the New Testament. Thus, it legitimizes this way of finding Jesus by way of contrast. All that the person or thing was, Jesus is not. And so here, King Hezekiah was proud in Jerusalem. We read of Jesus, the perfect king, riding a donkey into Jerusalem. But think of that for a moment. All that Hezekiah was, Jesus is not. All that Hezekiah should have been before God, Jesus is. In that contrast, we see our salvation. All that we should be and are not in our word, in our deed, in our thought, Jesus is for us. And when we repent and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, his perfection covers us. He takes our pride and gives us his humility. So we consider Hezekiah here, we consider his pride, and as we consider his pride, we think and see of Jesus by way of contrast to this defective king. Pride, first of all, loves the praise of man in verse 1. Letters, presents, and envoy from the world power of Babylon all turned the head of Hezekiah. He was flattered, tickled pink, deeply impressed that such an august power should visit the insignificant king of the small province of Judah. In 39 verse 2, we read that King Hezekiah welcomed this envoy gladly. And that's a significant phrase because this term is a change from the wording in 2 Kings 20 verse 13 in 2 Kings 20, 13, it says that Hezekiah heard them. He granted them an audience. He gave them a formal welcome. But this phrase is different. It is that he delighted in them. He was glad to see them. He was flattered by their attention. And this comment by Isaiah, he welcomed them gladly exposes King Hezekiah's heart because pride loves the praise of man. E.J. Young comments on this phrase, to Hezekiah 
The arrival of the envoys from Babylon brought joy. It was an honor to be noted by the king of distant Babylon. On Hezekiah's horizon lay the increasing threat of the mighty Assyrians. This congratulatory embassy from the emerging power of Babylon seemed to be a way for him out of his trouble and he delighted in their attention and in their presence. However, like all false praise, this king of Babylon had an ulterior motive in his gift and visit to Hezekiah. The king of Babylon at this time was Merodach Baladin, as we read in, in verse 1. He was an upstart. He was increasing in power and influence. Assyria was led by Sennacherib at this time, being the world power. The king of Assyria also had the position of being king of Babylon. But Merodach Baladin, he had usurped the throne of Babylon in 722 BC. He led Babylon from then until 710 and then again from 707 to 702. These ambassadors came to Judah in 702 BC. And this year, this year was significant. Merodach Baladan had just defeated the Assyrians in a famous battle at Kish. And he knew that a counter-offensive from the Assyrians was coming. And he wanted to raise support for his side. And so he is here on Hezekiah's doorstep, not to congratulate him or befriend him, but to, to elicit his support for this counter-offensive that is coming from the king of Assyria. He didn't truly care for Hezekiah and his health and well-being. He is only interested in furthering his own interests. Pride loves the praise of man. Pride can attack us at any time in our life. And what is striking about the experience of Hezekiah here is that it trips him up at the last hurdle. Hezekiah has come through so much and come through so much well, but he falls at this hurdle. He has come through the threat of Assyria at its city walls, the commander of that vast army standing on his very doorstep by faith in God. He got through that dark experience. He has come through his severe illness with flying colors. He has trusted in God in the darkest night of his experience. The emotion of being told that his life would end. And then the emotion of being told that he would live another 15 years was immense on any mortal. But he has come through this. But now he falls at the hurdle of flattery. Pride rises up in his heart. He shifts his trust 
away from God to trusting on man and on nations, on weapons and on power, on, on, on possessions. His fall doesn't come in the hard times of his life, but in the good times of his reign. He's like a runner losing the race at the line as the runner looks across to see where his opponent is and his opponent hits the tape before him. What a lesson, what a warning, what instruction there is for us here that hard times can actually be helpful for us. He was not proud when his city was under threat or when he was extremely ill. But when times were good and peaceful and prosperous and quiet. Perhaps we associate pride with young people. They can be dismissive of the views of older people. They can think that they know it all. They are confident perhaps in their own wisdom and ability. They don't listen to others. And sometimes we were. Sometimes they are. But the pride here is in a man in his 60s. A man who had experienced life. A man who shifts his trust from God to himself, to others. Pride loves the praise of man. Secondly, pride proclaims self-achievements in verse 2. Pride is all about ourself, who we are, what we have done. It aims to elevate ourselves, to focus on ourselves, to promote ourselves. And Hezekiah shows the foreign envoy the wealth of Jerusalem, what he had amassed, what he had achieved, what he had accumulated. He had reigned well. He had preserved the amassed wealth of David and Solomon and those before him. But in showing the ambassadors the wealth of Judah, he evidences his pride. Why he's doing it, we we understand, don't we? Here he is, he he brings these ambassadors into see the treasure house, to see the armory. He's doing it to persuade them that small Judah is competent to pay its army, to provide a a sizable group of weapons for its soldiers. They are small, they are insignificant, but he's showing them, trying to impress them that this is a capable small nation. But in doing this, he is showing his reliance on weaponry, on treasure. He is guiding these ambassadors, this envoy around to to show them the amount of treasure they have, the amount of arms, of swords, of, of shields that they possess, thereby indicating that his trust, his reliance for victory alongside of the Babylonians was in these things and not in God. Verse 4, that the phrase, all that is in my house, suggests self-reliance. He doesn't take them to the temple. He doesn't talk to them about his God and the worship of his God. He takes them to the armory and to the treasure house of his nation. He is proud And as he opens the safe and the armory, you can almost hear him saying to himself, I'm sure you never expected to see this man. 
A small country like Judah owning so much weaponry. But it was a foolish move. And the history of Israel reveals the folly of his actions here. This very treasure which he thought would be used to defeat the Assyrians was actually in the end given to the Assyrians so that they wouldn't attack Jerusalem. This very treasure which he showed to the Babylonians one day would be taken away by the Babylonians as they came and overran the city of Jerusalem and carried the people off to Babylon. Pride proclaims self-achievements. Here is Hezekiah on this guided tour, not of the temple and of his God, but of the armory and of the treasury. Last week, I discovered someone in the congregation has an MBE. And it was brilliant. I had no idea. Maybe you've no idea. I've been here for a year. I've been in their home. I've spoken to them at church. I never knew they had an MBE. And it is brilliant when we discover something good, something outstanding about someone that, that you didn't know. They never boasted about it. Isn't that the way for us to live? And it's laughable and saddening when someone boasts of a meager achievement. And surely this is the case with Hezekiah here. There was not great treasures in in this treasury. There was not great arms in this little country compared with what these Babylonians were used to. You can imagine this envoy, these ambassadors smirking at one another as Hedekiah is exuberant at showing them the treasury and the armory. Their treasury, their armory was something to talk about. Not this little parochial nations. But pride is full of self-reliance and self-achievement. Thirdly, Pride comes before a fall. This chapter teaches us in verses 3 to 7. We see this in others. We anticipate it in others. Sometimes we miss it in ourselves. The apprentice, which is on at the present time, is is full of examples of this. Young men and one uh, young woman bigging up themselves, claiming great abilities. And you just know they're setting themselves up for a fall here. and, 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 And sure it is, within a few weeks, they're away home. And we get this sense with with Hezekiah here. His exuberance. His self-reliance. We anticipate what's going to come here. And it does. Isaiah comes to the king. Sent by God. See that the phrase, the prophet. It's emphasizing his role. The appointed messenger of God. The king is acting like a pagan king. Relying on himself. His treasury. His armaments. His resources. But his answers to the prophet. Are evasive. He's asked what did they say. And he doesn't answer that. He's exuberant about his actions. And showing them the the wealth. And the the, the armaments of of his house. And of his nation. And in response the prophet replies. In verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. 
The message is that the people he is courting, the Babylonians, they will turn out to be their enemy. The Assyrians, the prophet asserts, are not the ones to fear. The Babylonians are not the ones to favor. It is God who's to be feared and favored. And Isaiah predicts in these verses, exile of Judah to Babylon. Assyria was the dominant power at that time. But the exile of Judah will be to Babylon. And what an irony it is. Here is Hezekiah, exuberant about Babylon. They've come to see me. They're interested in me. They're concerned with with our nation. Babylon, Babylon, this is all he can say. And it's as if Isaiah says, well, do you like Babylon then? Well, that's where you're going to go. Alec Mateer says, comments, if you love Babylon so much, you will be glad to know that all you take such pride in is going to go there. And so Babylon mentioned in verse 3 is matched by Babylon mentioned in verse 5. And everything that he showed them to Babylon in verse 4 is going to be taken away to Babylon in verse number 5. Pride comes before our fall. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, spoke of the the greatness of his kingdom. Isn't this great Babylon that I have built, he said, and then he is brought down. Herod, you remember in in Acts 12, Herod made that great speech, very eloquent, very moving, very powerful. The people that listened to him said, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod lapped it up and he was brought down. And why does this happen? The essence of pride is that we trust in ourselves and don't give the glory to God. This was Hezekiah's failing, wasn't it? He was trusting in his wealth. He was trusting in his swords and shields. He was trusting in Babylon rather than trusting in God to defend him, to protect him, to provide for him. Proverbs says, as it observed life, chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're all familiar learning in, in school or, or, or history of the, the assertion made about the, the Titanic ship. Not even God could sink the ship. Pride in that instance came before the fall. And lastly, pride is indifferent to the pain of others. E.J. Young thinks that in verse 8, in this uh, response of Hezekiah uh, to the words of Isaiah, Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now, E.J. Young thinks, uh, and he's usually right in what he says, but I think in this case he, he gets a wee bit wrong. He thinks that Hezekiah acts with humility here. He comments, Hezekiah's true piety manifests itself. He acknowledges his wrongs. He accepts his punishment, E.J. Young says. But I think a better understanding of this is that Hezekiah's defective here. 
He's thinking only of himself. There'll be peace and security in my days. I will know ease. I I will know rest. I will not be taken exile. And this is another expression of pride that we are indifferent to the pain of others. Alec Mottier comments, what a wretched response from Hezekiah. The third-rate king had been given the chance to play politics in the first league and was not going to return to trust in God. Rather than God's word being met here with repentance and trust and prayer, it's met with smugness. There will be peace and security in my day. And we've known from our own experience, from our pride, that it's self-absorbing. We care only for our own well-being. Hezekiah would have descendants who would be plundered and, and exiled. But his concern was only with himself and his security, peace and security in his time. The Reformation Study Bible takes this position when it comments this response as a negative note. As the king shows little concern for his own descendants or for his people or for the messianic promise of the coming son of David. Many are asking about the politicians in Stormont. Do they only care for themselves? Pensioners. Businessmen and women, teachers, the NHS are all suffering because the assembly is not functioning. Are they only concerned about their own peace and security and not the needs of others? Pride is indifferent to the pain of others. It makes us self-absorbed. We see only our own needs. We cannot see beyond the end of our nose. So concerned with our needs we are. We're happy to save our own skin. Even if it means that others are hurt. Philippians 2.3 says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility value others above yourselves. So the drive for us then to be humble comes from two sources in this chapter in Isaiah. One is the warning of Hezekiah's defective behavior, the bad example that he sets us here of trusting in himself and what he's amassed and accomplished and achieved. And the other is from the depiction of Jesus in this chapter. Throughout this first section of of Isaiah, Jesus is the humble one. He's described as the shoot from the stump in chapter 4, the twig from the branch in chapter 11. He'll be described as the servant of the Lord in the second part of Isaiah. He takes the lowly place, the humble part, the insignificant role. Pride loves the praise of man. Jesus and we should choose the praise of God. Pride proclaims self-achievements. Jesus and we should proclaim and seek first the kingdom of God. Pride comes before a fall. Jesus and we should stoop low and God will exalt us. Pride is indifferent to the pain of others. 
Jesus and we should in humility bear others' pain. As disciples of Jesus, we follow the way of humility that he walked, not the way of pride. He has said, he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus, the servant king.